The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, <clears throat> so now we are coming back again to Majjhimanikai number 19. Uh, this is the sutta we had a look at before, uh, the one where we, he was looking at the um, uh, unwholesome kind of thoughts, dividing his thoughts into two classes, and then uh, how to overcome the uh, bad thoughts by basically using wisdom and wisdom power to overcome the problems of the mind. Uh, and now we have dealt with all the kind of various bad qualities through in the Upakilesa Sutta, and now we can continue on the Majjhimanikai 19, and we're going to have a look at the wholesome thoughts, uh, and uh, how also to deal with them, uh, and uh, eventually go beyond even the, uh, the wholesome kinds of thinking here. So this sutta, known as the Dveda Vitaka Sutta uh, in Pali, two kinds of thoughts, uh, twofold thoughts, uh, and uh, it carries on like this. Uh, then, uh, as I was uh, heedful, keen, and diligent, uh, a thought of renunciation arose in me. Uh, I understood uh, this thought of renunciation has arisen in me. Uh, it doesn't lead to hurting myself, uh, to hurting others, uh, or to hurting both. Uh, it nourishes wisdom. Uh, it's on the side of freedom from anguish, uh, and it leads to extinguishment, to nibbana. If I were to keep on thinking and considering this all night, all day, all night and day, uh, I see no danger that would come from it. Still, thinking and considering for too long would tire my body. Uh, and when the body is tired, the mind is stressed. Uh, and when the mind is stressed, it is far from stillness. Uh, so I stilled, settled, unified and uh, stilled the mind internally. Uh, why is that? So that my mind should not be stressed. So uh, here you have the uh, the positive side. The thought of renunciation is one of the uh, good thoughts, and uh, it is kind of interesting. What exactly does it mean? A thought of renunciation. What is it? Uh, it's kind of maybe not be entirely obvious, uh, but it is really the opposite of a thought of sensuality. So it is a thought that has to do with giving up sensuality or a thought that is not interested in the sensory world. Yeah, you sit down, you meditate, you don't think about what you're going to eat or what you're going to entertainment and all these kind of things. You turn away from that. Your mind understands the limitations of those things that are not really all that interesting. Yeah. And it turns towards peace and stillness and all of these other qualities instead, all the spiritual qualities of the path. Uh, that's where it goes. Uh, so the idea here is uh, not so much that you reject the sensory world or that you feel it is, uh, um, that you kind of are disgusted with it. Uh, can be that as well, maybe to some extent. But the main thing is that you don't attach to that world. Uh, that is the main thing here. And as I mentioned before, one of the kind of amazing things in the suttas uh, is that you find that the noble ones or the people who attain jhanas, they actually, uh, they, 
they actually experience the sensory world even more than they did before. It's even more enjoyable in a certain way. It is just that they don't attach to it, they don't crave for it, they don't think about it, they don't hope for it, they have no expectations in that world. They know that the limitations of it, but that knowledge of the limitation, because it reduces the craving, actually enables you to experience it more. So it actually seems better than before. And that is kind of the paradox of these things. So it is the um, attachment that we give up. Uh, and uh, so you are still allowed to enjoy yourself. Isn't that good news? <laughs> it's okay to enjoy yourself, especially enjoy yourself in meditation. Uh, but uh, you, you, uh, the, the problem is, of course, that we, if you enjoy that, that world too much, you tend to attach to it. Uh, and that is kind of the problem. So you need to contemplate the downside in order to renounce that world in this way. Uh, so um, a thought of renunciation would be considering all those similes that we talked about before uh, on the downsides. That would, if you do that uh, fully uh, and you kind of uh, appreciate those similes, that's a kind of thought of renunciation, seeing the danger in attachments in that world, uh, uh, moving your mind in a different direction, uh, wanting to practice the spiritual path, desiring to do meditation practice, uh, eliminating these sort of things in your mind. Uh, all of these are, would be cons come under the idea of thoughts or renunciation. Nekama uh, vitaka. Is, is this what this is about? Uh, so um, that gives an idea of what this is about. Uh, um, Non-delighting in that world. Uh, one of my kind of favorite little uh, uh, perceptions uh, you find in the sutta is called the Sabbaloki anabiratasana, non-delight in the whole world. And the whole world in this kind of context usually means the five sense world. So the non-delight in that whole world, it's like you you look at you know what's happening in the world and you kind of get this kind of yuck feeling. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, too much. It's just the world is just... There's just so much messing around, so many problems, so many endless problems, one coming up after the other, and there seems to be no solution. Or if there is a solution, we as human beings are not able to follow those solutions. We kind of, we, our habits and our <laughs> attachments are so strong, we just can't seem to give it up yeah, and kind of find the solutions. It's like, okay, well, if that's how we are, then I better look somewhere else for the solutions. So the whole world just seems kind of uninteresting after a while because you know that maybe we can't solve the big problems of the world. Maybe they're just going to recur and recur and recur and come back. And then we so once we eventually get desperate enough, maybe we solve it a little bit halfway and then it comes back again you know, we have been knowing about things like climate change for how many years? Decades, you know, and they can't really seem to deal with it. Uh, maybe when we are kind of faced with an existential crisis, we come up with some half-baked measures to get there. I don't know what we do. Uh, and it's not about blaming anyone. Uh, it's not about blaming it because people are just people. Uh, it's just the reality of the world. That is really the right way of thinking about it. Uh, if you start blaming the you know, people in politics or whatever, you're actually missing a little bit of the point of what this is about. Uh, and so I, when I always find it, I mean, some monastics really get into climate change and kind of solving that and that, that sort of thing. And But I think that's, to me, that's not the way I like to approach those questions. Uh, for me, it is more like a general sense of weariness with this whole realm of the world, which just... Uh, 
goes around and around in circles uh, where the problems are not really soluble. They're not soluble because, uh, uh, or solvable, or solvable, 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 uh, solvable, solvable means it dissolves in water, right? So I, I thought, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. So, uh, there is, so there is basically, it's unfixable. And that is kind of the whole point of the Buddha. Huh? It just goes round and round in circles. So you kind of, the whole thing, you sort of reject it en masse. The whole thing, you just kind of let it go. Huh? And uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is part of this idea of renunciation. Huh? And then, of course, if you do it wisely, you don't get depressed, you don't get sad, because you know, actually, there is a solution. Huh? It's just found in a very different place from where most people look at it. Huh? It is found in the spiritual life. It is found in going inwards. It found found in all these beautiful qualities of the heart, of kindness, of compassion, of generosity, of understanding, of having metta for the world. That is the solution. And by solving those things for ourselves, we bring other people with us. That's the beauty of it. We kind of follow along in the slipstream. Yeah, the slipstream of the Buddha. And then each one of us becomes a smaller slipstream and someone else follows in our slipstream. And the world kind of a lot of people moving in the same direction. Uh, that is the real solution to this. Uh, and that is what we need to see, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything about the problems in the world. We should. Uh, we should do it because we have compassion, uh, because we want to help others. Uh, but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that there is any final solution in that realm. Uh. So uh, these thoughts, uh, yeah, they don't lead to hurting myself. And because... Uh, when you renounce the five sense world, uh, you are no longer in competition with others. Uh, you're no longer causing attachments uh, in that world. Uh, uh, you are going inwards within yourself, and within yourself, uh, you are, uh, you know, you are developing good qualities within yourself. And those good qualities that you develop within yourself, uh, you then take with you into the world afterwards. Uh, so you're doing the opposite of hurting yourself, uh, and and you're actually building up these good qualities, uh, and the same thing with others because you're not competing with them, uh, you're not kind of attaching to them or whatever. Uh, uh, you're not um, doing things that lead to other people's harm. In fact, the opposite because you're building up good qualities, uh, so you have this chance to help others rather than hurt them. Uh, the same thing with both people. Uh, you nourish wisdom, panya vudika. You are building up wisdom. Buddha means to increase. Uh, you are uh, someone who increases wisdom. Uh, um, the uh, thought renunciation cools the mind down. Uh, it uh, dissolves the vested interest. Uh, it uh, makes the mind non-attached. Uh, and it's in, in this, uh, at these times that you can actually see clearly what is going on. Uh, yeah, when you d remove that distortion, the veil in the world that distorts everything. Yeah, that is where wisdom becomes possible. Yeah. It's not on the side of anguish, it's on the side of freedom from anguish. Uh, and it leads to extinguishment. In fact, it is a little bit of an extinguishment in its own right. Uh, because when you have that nekama uh, vitaka, uh, actually you have extinguished uh, the problem of greed or, or uh, desire, at least to some extent. Uh. And then he says, even if you think about this all night, all day, all night and day, there is no danger uh, that comes from that. Uh. Yeah, these thoughts are not dangerous. Uh, these thoughts don't have any bad repercussions. Uh, they don't lead to any problem. Uh, there's no bad karma, etc., etc., with these thoughts. Uh, and um, but then, and this is kind of the interesting part. Uh, still, thinking, considering for too long would t 
tire my body. And when the body is tired, the mind is stressed. And then when the mind is stressed, it is far from stillness or samadhi. So the, this is just the general problem of thinking in general, that thoughts, the movement of the mind, the restlessness, the agitation inside, actually leads to a draining of your energy. Yeah, It's like all all agitation movement leads to the draining of energy. Even if you think just kind thoughts all the time, still, it is not kind of ideal. Um. So uh, it, that is one part. Another part of it is almost impossible to think good thoughts all the time. But uh, you know, even if that was possible, especially if you are around people a lot, uh, but even if you can, it still kind of uh, drains the mind. Uh, and uh, so the body becomes tired. What is the meaning of body? It's a kind of strange thing, body, because the mind, uh, or so the idea here of the word body, uh, it is uh, kind of the personality becomes tired. Uh, yeah, the body, the word body, often in Pali means like personality or, or something like that, whereas the mind often is a reference to the more like the consciousness or awareness side of things. So the body is a kind of a broader thing. It's like your perceptions of things or the feelings about things. You become tired in this way. And it includes the physical body, right? The physical body is part of that perceptual, it's just a perception of the world, really, the physical body here. And then when the, phys- when the mental aspect of the world, the uh, personality becomes tired, then the entire mind is stressed or tired or not happy as a consequence. Uh, so you want to, uh, you want to uh, free the mind uh, or free yourself from tiredness. You want to rebuild your energy. Uh, yeah? And that happens in samadhi. That happens in meditation. It happens when you just allow everything to go not controlling things, uh, moving the mind towards stillness. Uh, and this is the power of stillness here. Uh. So it then says that you settle, unify, and, and still the mind. Uh, and this is a standard way of talking about the jhanas in the suttas. Uh, the settle, unify, and still the mind. Uh. So what we're seeing here is the deep kind of samadhi. And do this, uh, that the mind will not be stressed. Uh. So once again, what you see here is you see like the gradual development of the path. You know, the idea that it happens in a certain sequence. And uh, you would notice a very important part of this is the overcoming of the unwholesome thoughts. Only then do you overcome all thinking. Uh, yeah, it has a very clear sequence here mentioned in the sutta. And that is very important. Uh, Sometimes people, they sit down with all kinds of unwholesome thoughts uh, and they think you're going to stray from unwholesome thoughts straight into samadhi. Uh, and actually, uh, it doesn't work. And what it leads to, it leads to all kinds of mental problems because you have to suppress and repress and all these kind of things. Uh, so you should know where my mind is now at this particular time, the general state of my mind, but also where it is now. Uh, do I have some irritations or problems that are not resolved? Uh, do I have some strong desires that need to be sorted out? Uh, go and do walking meditation first of all. Go and have a cup of tea. Read a sutta. Do anything else uh, before you try to still this down. You cannot still down uh, the um, unwholesome thoughts. You have to overcome them first. Then you still things down based on the wholesome thoughts. Uh, um, so that, that is a very important point. Uh, if it's a tiny bit of unwholesome thought, it's fine. You can deal with that. But if it is kind of st- fairly strong, you need to uh, go through this pro- right sequence of things. Uh, so um, this is, I think, one of the main messages of this particular sutta, that you 
do things in the right sequence. Sometimes you do see people going a bit crazy here on retreats, and I think this is part of the reason why that may happen. Usually you have to monitor yourself carefully. You have to look at what's happening in your mind. If you start to feel a bit funny, you start to feel a bit strange, you feel more deluded than before, then you have good reasons to come out and to stop the meditation practice. Meditation should be a pleasant experience. You should feel more clear. You should feel more sane. You should feel all of these good things. And then you are on the right track. All right. So that is the first kind of uh, uh, wholesome thought. Then uh, as I was uh, heedful, keen and diligent, a thought of goodwill. Yeah, the Pali is actually avyapada vitaka, if my memory serves me right. And uh, avyapada means non-ill will, but uh, that generally means goodwill. It means metta, generally speaking. Yeah. Or it can be a upeka, but uh, it, you know... Metta is not a bad approximation here. A thought of harmlessness, avihingsa. Uh, so this would be something like compassion, yeah, karuna or uh, karuna or anukampa uh, or daya. There's all these words for compassion in Pali. Uh, anukampa means like to tremble along with. Uh, yeah, when you have when you see someone really suffer and you want to help out, it's like you tremble a little bit. Uh, anukampa, Kam- kampati to tremble. Uh. Uh, karuna is more like directly compassion. Uh, and daya, daya is another one which means like sympathy or something like that. We have a, a monk in our monastery, he, he just recently ordained as a samanera, his name is Dayalu. Dayalu. It's a kind of pretty unique name, isn't it? Dayalu. Have you heard about Dayalu before? Not many Dayalus around. Well, if you want to see him, come to Bodhinyana Monastery. That's where you find maybe the only Dayalu in the world there. And he's a very nice young monk, so hopefully he will live up to his, his name of Dayalu. <laughs> So you have to, sometimes you have to be innovative in your names. Uh, that makes makes it interesting. So anyway, yeah. So this thought, I understood this thought of uh, harmlessness or metta has arisen in me. Yeah. It doesn't lead to uh, or, or, or compassion, rather. This doesn't lead to hurting myself or hurting others or hurting both. Uh, it nourishes wisdom. Uh, it's on the side of freedom from anguish and leads to extinguishment. Uh. So um, here, first of all, you have the thought of metta, first of all, uh, uh, the, f- the thought of goodwill, uh, and it's all contracted here. Uh, and if you have goodwill, you have metta, it does not lead to harming, obviously, because metta is the opposite of harming. Uh, and this is one of those things, and this is where it comes in, this idea that I mentioned before, that a thought that aligns with the Dhamma, that is truly spiritual, is good for both you and for others. Uh, you actually find it right here in this sutta. It just occurred to me now. It's kind of obvious when I see it now. Yeah, it's good for me, uh, and it's good for others, uh, and for both. Uh, it doesn't hurt anyone. Uh. So, and that's kind of obvious with metta. It feels good, uh, and it is good uh, for your relationships. And the first thing to understand is this: that this thought has arisen in me, uh, Especially with the renunciation, it can be hard to see that. Uh, but uh, with metta, it's a bit easier. But it's actually broader than just metta. It is also upeka and uh, all the thoughts that are leading away from ill will. They're all part of this. Uh, 
And so you need to uh, recognize them, first of all. You need to know your mind really well. Uh, and this idea of getting to know yourself well, being clear about your emotional states, and all of this is actually an important part of the Buddhist path. Uh, and so when you walk back and forth in the sunlight, just enjoying the peace, one of the things you can do is just to really understand yourself well, to see the thoughts as they arise, why they arise, what is actually going on in your mind. Uh, what, how do you experience these thoughts? What are the feelings that come with them? Uh, and to see these things is actually uh, very useful because you start to understand precisely these sort of things uh, and you understand the causality that lies behind this so you can steer your mind in the right direction, etc., etc. Uh, metta leads to wisdom. Uh, yeah? Panya buddhika, it increases wisdom. Uh, so if you have metta, not only do you feel good, not only is it good for others, but it actually leads to wisdom. Uh, and of course, the reason is because it is the opposite of anger. Anger is a deluded state of mind, uh, where your mind is, um, again, you have this vested interest in seeing the negative in other people. Uh, but here, all of that is gone. Uh, so the mind is clear. The mind is kind of straight. That's what they call it elsewhere. They call the mind, it's a straight mind when you have, a, when you have metta in the mind. Uh, it's not distorted. Uh, yeah, so, and this is kind of nice, because the other day, I was just talking about uh, the idea of developing metta and uh, the idea of developing metta is about seeing the good qualities in other people, right? Uh, and some people would say, well, actually, that's not, being, that's not seeing things according to reality because you're just focusing on the good. We all know that they have bad qualities as well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I want to see, I, I want to be realistic. I want to see the bad and the good. Otherwise, I'm just fooling myself, right? Uh, but the Buddha is saying the opposite here. Uh, he said that if you focus on those bad qualities, actually what is happening is that your mind gets distorted because it is not just about seeing the bad, it's actually about giving rise to ill will and all of these negative things at the same time. So we should focus one-sidedly on the good quality. That is actually the right way of doing these things because it leads to good qualities. Now, it, it, this doesn't mean that we should be completely blind to the bad qualities. Now, sometimes you have to be honest about other people's bad qualities. Otherwise, you get yourself in harm's way, all of these kind of things. But, uh, and then sometimes, so sometimes you have to do that. But it depends on the circumstance. If it's just an irritation of people around you, then you focus on the meta because actually it doesn't really matter. It's not going to be any, you know, it's not nothing to do with abuse or anything like that. Uh, however, if it is a more serious negative quality, like someone abusing you and, and these kind of things, uh, then it is better to use ideas such as compassion towards that person so that you are aware of the negative quality, uh, but you have compassion for them because you understand that they don't really understand what's going on. Uh, they are deluded. Uh, so it, it is important to do these things in the right way so that we don't, you know, we don't actually hurt ourselves or anyone else. Uh, because if we do that, then of course it's really bad news. In fact, if there is a problem with abuse in any kind of uh, community, whether it's spiritual community or whatever, of course we should, uh, we are, we, we should, not only should we uh, not hide it, uh, but we should be open about it with other people so as to avoid these things spreading in our communities. Uh, that is actually very, very important. Uh, so metta leads to more wisdom, right? It is not about deluding yourself at all. Uh, it leads to freedom from anguish. Uh, the uh, unpleasant qualities that come with anger are gone, uh, and it leads to nibbana. It is a kind of nibbana in its own right. It's the nibbanaing of uh, ill will and anger. It's gone. Uh. Then you have the thought of harmlessness. This is the compassion usually. 
the opposite of vihingsa. And uh, again, of course, if you have compassion, the compassion is almost the exact opposite of wanting to hurt someone. It's wanting to help people. You don't hurt yourself. You don't hurt others. Uh, uh, you don't hurt uh, neither. Uh, and again, it nourishes wisdom and all of these things in a similar way as metta does because you are have a non-distorted mind. Uh, you see things uh, as they actually are. I remember the Buddha, he had the Maha Karuna and he would practice that every day, especially after the meal. Uh, and uh, so for the Buddha, compassion is a natural response to the state of humanity because from his point of view, everyone is really suffering here. And because everyone is suffering in the world and they don't really know what's going on, compassion is the right response. So in a sense, by developing compassion, we are developing some of the qualities that the Buddha had a lot of. But uh, it is also very usually important to develop metta before you develop compassion. Because compassion is quite close to seeing dukkha. And if you see too much dukkha in the world, that can lead to um, loss of energy because it's just too hard to deal with all that dukkha in the world. So if you can use metta, first of all, uh, it is um, uh, recommended. And you will see in the suttas, uh, metta is talked about much more than karuna. Metta, the idea of friendliness and love, uh, is actually the thing which is uh, the most important of the four Brahma-viharas because... Uh, it doesn't have any downsides. It doesn't have the danger of seeing the suffering and then therefore, uh, you know, draining your mind from energy because dealing with all that suffering can be really hard. Uh, so metta is always the most basic one. If you, the four Brahma Viharas, metta, karuna, mudita and upeka. Metta always first. Uh, if you look at the suttas, uh, metta is the one that's discussed the most. Like in the Kakachupama Sutta, Majjhima 21, the simile of the saw is all about metta. The metta nisangsa suttas, uh, the benefits of metta, found in the Anguttara Nikaya, etc. And, and so that's quite uh, met, the metta sutta itself, right? There's no Karuna Sutta, but there is a metta sutta. And there might be a reason for that. Or maybe they lost the Karuna Sutta. I mean, <laughs> maybe there is a Karuna Sutta originally, I don't know. Uh, Kandaparitta, that's right. Kandaparitta, that's a beautiful uh, sutta found in the Anguttara Nikaya, um, which is all about spreading metta to all the creatures in the world. Yeah, spreading metta to the snakes, the scorpions, the centipedes, uh, the spiders, uh, all of these things. Uh, and uh, it is a protection chant that we often do uh, uh, as monastics as well. Uh, it protects you against these creatures by spreading metta towards them. Uh, that's kind of nice. Uh, so I uh, hope you don't have any phobias against insects uh, because uh, that makes it more difficult to have a meta towards uh, the little spiders and this kind of thing. So, so um, then, uh, yeah, so, but still, even if you have, think, keep thinking about these things, yeah, thinking meta, may, oh, I wish you well, whatever. If you do this all night and day, uh, then uh, the mind or the body becomes tired. Uh, when the body is tired, the mind gets stressed. Uh, and then when the mind is stressed, it is far from samadhi. And we want it to be stilled and settled and unified in samadhi internally uh, so that it doesn't get stressed. So, uh, yeah, so same, same as before. Yeah, the, Overcoming the negative thoughts, then going to the good thoughts, then uh, uh, going to samadhi. Uh, and then we follow the structure as like we had before, same kind of uh, ideas. And uh, then uh, we have a simile coming up, and the simile, ah, that's right, yeah, the simile should maybe come, f no, there's actually one more paragraph first. Uh, 
But there is a not there's a parallel sutta. Well, I think the simile comes first, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Huh? Whatever a mendicant frequently thinks about and considers uh, becomes their heart's inclination. Huh? If they often think about and consider thoughts of renunciation, they have given up sensual thoughts or sensory thoughts uh, to cultivate the thought of renunciation. Uh, the mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation uh, if they often think about. Yeah, then it goes on to the next ones, uh, and this is the uh, this is kind of the power of these things. Yeah, is that what our job really is? Is to kind of incline our mind in a new way, uh, to move it in a new direction. It can be done. This is kind of the point here. Uh, there is a beautiful sutta in the Anguttara twos, I think, numerical discourses twos, uh, where the Buddha says it is possible to cultivate the mind. Uh, it is possible to develop good qualities. If it was not possible, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't uh, advise you to develop good qualities. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and then it, then it says, not only is it possible, but it is beneficial to develop good qualities. Uh, it's kind of obvious when you've been around for a long time, but uh, maybe it is not, not not as obvious as you think it is. Uh, and the reason why it is not so obvious again is the sense of self inside. Uh, the sense of self inside tells you that you are permanent in a certain way, that there are certain sticky qualities inside of you that are hard to get rid of. So you may not be fully aware, even though you think you are aware, you may not be fully aware how cultivatable, I'm not sure if that's a word, but anyway, it is a word now, cultivatable the mind is. Yeah, it can be cultivated and it can be changed, it can be developed, it can, you can move it in a certain way. And uh, it's really important to recognize that because we have a tendency to think that the outlook that we have now, the views that we have now, the perceptions that we have now are somehow stuck uh, and that we can't go any further, right? Uh, and it's very hard for us to really recognize uh, how we can see the world in a different way. And sometimes you are surprised. Uh, sometimes you do cultivate these things. Sometimes you go into a state of meditation never been before. Uh, and that is when you start to recognize how changeable things are. Uh, and that is why uh, sometimes meditation can seem, like we saw before, a bit scary because it actually moves you towards states that you never even imagined before. Uh, and you feel that you are on the edge of something. Uh, you are on the edge of the precipice and you're about to jump off. Uh, and you're wondering, what is in that precipice? Uh, is it bliss or is it dukkha in that precipice? And of course, it's bliss. <laughs> but you are not really sure about that. Uh, I'm making it sound overly dramatic now. But you, you have an idea here what's going on uh, and so this is actually a hindrance on the path. And this is one reason why confidence and faith in these teachings is so important. Uh, because it allows you to move on even though uh, you may feel to you that you are more uh, solid than you actually are. Uh, the mind is malleable, changeable, developable. Uh, and we just need to trust that in a sense and then develop this perception, develop these views, develop this um, stillness as a meditation and see the process happen over time. Uh, and then you change uh, and then you look back and you think, thank God I changed. Actually, don't, you never think thank God. You think, thank the Buddha I changed. <laughs> if you thank God, you have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so the super tanker changes direction. The momentum from the past, yeah, gradually it, uh, it, it is no longer able to hold you onto that uh, straight course in one direction. Uh, and then gradually, gradually move around. Uh, your habits become less and weaker uh, and you create new habits. Uh, and of course, the interesting thing about this is that those new things that you do, they become habits. Uh, 
And when they become habits, uh, then it's easy to follow the spiritual path. Uh, and this is why the spiritual path is most difficult in the beginning. Yeah? Because in the, in the beginning, you have all this momentum from the past. Uh, but when you build up the momentum in a new direction, because the, mom- it's the momentum is still there, it's just heading in a new way, it becomes easy. Yeah? So the most difficult thing on the spiritual path is the beginning to overcome your habits. Uh, and to overcome those habits, you just need to be motivated to the maximum. Uh, carry on, carry on, carry on. Uh. So, uh, you uh, incline the heart, the mind, in a new direction. Uh, and that becomes the kind of the inclination of your mind. Uh, and if you die with that kind of inclination, that is where your mind goes into the future. And that's how you get a good rebirth. doesn't say that in the sutta, but that's kind of just taking from elsewhere. Uh. And so this um, all kind of fits together in this way here. Um, And they often think about and consider thoughts of goodwill, metta thoughts. Um... They have given up the thoughts of ill will to cultivate the thoughts of metta. Their mind inclined towards metta. Yeah, your natural inclination is metta. Isn't that nicer? That is kind of your general thing when you think about other people. You tend to think good thoughts about them. You don't see the negative in people anymore. You don't talk about it. You talk about the good qualities. And that's kind of a very very attractive thing yeah it's so easy to see the negative in others uh, so ne- so easy to kind of pull people down and see you know talk about the negative things it's such a human thing to do huh? because these are the inclinations we tend to be born with that's why we were born as humans in the first place because precisely because we had those inclinations uh, and so now we need to shift around we need to kind of see the goodness in the people around us uh, and incline towards metta uh, Naturally, you think thoughts of kindness and appreciation and affection towards the people around you. Same thing with compassion. You incline the mind towards compassion. And you understand the suffering in the world. You understand that everyone is in this suffering together. No one wants to be there. But because we are so deluded, we repeatedly get ourselves into the swamp of suffering here. Yeah, we don't really know that we're doing it, but we are still doing it. Uh, and that blindness that drives everyone into suffering, even though they want to be happy here, uh, it's kind of a little bit, little bit tragic, isn't it? Uh, that we all want to be happy, and we're all heading towards suffering here. Uh. <laughs> to some extent, anyway. I mean, some of us, I guess many of us here are kind of slowly but surely moving out from that suffering here. Uh, but the tendency for people is to move on to new rebirths, more suffering, more of the problems, even though we want happiness. Uh, we don't really have enough understanding to know what we're doing. And then compassion arises uh, when you see that. Uh, how can you not have compassion when you see the desire for happiness, uh, but the, the, the perpetual move towards suffering, uh, even though you want happiness? Uh, this is what you see in others. Uh, and then you, uh, you, you know, after a while, you just want to be uh, kind to them and kind of see if you can help. So then, gradually, gradually, your heart com- comes around, and this becomes the inclination of your mind. And uh, that is uh, obviously very good news. Uh, positive mind states, which makes it possible to uh, meditate and then uh, achieve samadhi. Anyway, suppose it is the last month of the summer when all the crops have been gathered within a village, uh, and a cowherd must take care of the cattle. Uh, 
while at the root of a tree or in the open, he needs only be mindful that the cattle are there. In the same way, I needed only to be mindful that those things were there, those qualities, things here is Dhamma, those mental qualities were there. So now you can chillax. That's what I said, it gets easier, yeah? In the beginning of the path, remember the, um, the cat, cow herd, he has to kind of tap the mind this way, tap the cows that way and that way, always has to be alert and careful so the mind doesn't stray into the kind of the, the cows don't stray into the fields, the mind doesn't stray into the bad habits. But now he just sits down, yeah, and he kind of looks at the blue sky. I guess he's mindful of the cattle, but, uh, you know, he also enjoys the environment or whatever. And uh, that's kind of the, the, the cow herd is at ease and relaxed, uh, just like we are at ease and relaxed in our meditation. Uh, you sit down and you are like a cow herder, guarding your mind, guarding your little cow inside. Uh, <laughs> so you are mindful and aware that those good qualities are there. Yeah? This is kind of your job when you start to purify your mind. And then the Buddha says, "My again, this is the same uh, sequence we saw before. My energy was roused up and unflagging. Uh, my mindfulness was established and lucid. Uh, my body was tranquil and undisturbed. Uh, and my mind was stilled in samadhi. Uh, yeah, so this is what happens when you have all positive mind states. Uh, you sit down, you just enjoy yourself because your mind is so positive. Uh, and with those positive feelings comes energy because your mind is energized because it is happy and doing well. Uh, and with that energy uh, and happiness, because the present moment is the pleasant moment, according to Ajahn Brahm, uh, that means you are mindful because you want to be here. You're enjoying just being here with your good friends and comrades. Uh, Comrades in the spiritual life, that sounds like some kind of meditation camp in the so old Soviet Union, uh, the comrades in the spiritual life. Uh, and you uh, hang out, it's actually one of Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, he, he says comrades. Uh, and I asked him, why do you have comrades? It sounds like something out of Soviet Russia. And he said, oh, it's because I couldn't think of any other words, I used comrades. Okay, well, <laughs> So this is how sometimes translations happen. It's kind of a random word that pops into your mind and it gets onto the page and it gets stuck on the page. And everyone, everyone has to deal with the consequences afterwards. So you have mindfulness because you're happy and doing well. And then from that mindfulness, here we are now really doing meditation practice. And because of that, mindfulness established and lucid and tranquility yeah, is there. The body becomes tranquil. Uh, and uh, the body can only reach so much tranquility in ordinary life. Uh, but it's really in meditation that the body becomes incredibly still and tranquil. Uh, so here we are probably dealing with meditation already. Uh, tranquility of the body means that the body becomes rock solid, really. Uh, you're sitting there, the body is kind of immovable. Uh, you feel really solid. Actually, you barely feel the body at all at some of these stages. You're already going into your mind. But uh, to the extent that the body is there, it's like just this solid thing uh, which doesn't want to move. Uh, and you feel like this uh, rock uh, and you are immovable. You don't want to move. Yeah, This is the kind of body you want. Uh, 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 tranquil, no restlessness, nothing at all there. Uh. And uh, I sometimes I have sat next to Ajahn Brahm in meditation. It's kind of this strange feeling of something that is completely immovable. Uh, it's really kind of amazing to watch that when you see it from the outside. It's kind of extraordinary. Uh, I don't remember the, the story. I think I told this story many times before. But it's a kind of nice story. Uh, 
This is a story of Ajahn Brahm on the asana in Thailand. I just heard this story from someone else, but it's kind of an interesting story. He was sitting you know, in Thailand when he was a young monk. This would have been back in the 70s or early 80s, maybe something like that, probably 1970s. And uh, they have this asana. Like here, this is called an asana. Asana just means a seat, right? But it's kind of an elevated platform. Uh, that's where the monks and the lay people would sit a little bit down, and they would all these... Uh, all the Thai ladies would normally come to these all-night sits. And every, on the full moon or the new moon, they would have an all-night sit. Everyone would sit throughout the night. And they would be often be very tiring and difficult to do. And as the night goes on, people start to leave because they just had enough of this all-night sit. So the lay people would leave. Some of the monks would go back to the kutis. And more and more people leave. But some of these old Thai ladies, they were really, really tough. Yeah. Not only tough, but they were used to sitting on the floor, right? They sat on the floor their whole life. They, they really knew how to sit on the floor. But as a kind of some of these monks who were Western, it was Wat Pananachat. Most of the monks were from the West, never sat on the floor. It had so much pain and problems and all kinds of things. You can imagine what it would be like. And so as the night kind of went on, everybody left. And there's only two people left in the hall. There was Ajahn Brahm on the asana. And then there was this ancient Thai lady on the floor, yeah, who kind of <laughs> sitting there. And she was watching Ajahn Brahm, yeah, seeing what was going on. Uh, and after kind of hours and hours went by, yeah, Ajahn Brahm absolutely still. There was no movement at all. Because uh, when you get incredibly still, even your breathing almost stops. Maybe it even stops if your meditation is deep enough. Uh, so after many, many hours, uh, this old Thai lady gets up uh, and she walks out of the hall uh, and she finds a monk and she says, excuse me, Venerable, there's a dead monk sitting in the hall. Uh. <laughs> You better bury him and kind of put him on the funeral pyre, burn him up because he is, he's finished. <laughs> and that is the feeling you get when he sits next to someone who is really, really still. This seems like they are dead, right? It's kind of amazing, yeah. And uh, I, I remember that this is another kind of tiny little anecdote. I just remember sitting next to Ajahn Brahm. It was a retreat somewhere, long, long, long time back in the mid-90s or something. And, and Ajahn Brahm was sitting there in meditation there. And there was mosquitoes in the room, right? And so the mosquitoes would come and they were kind of, you know, would be very annoying. Yeah. But then I looked at Ajahn Brahm and he was absolutely still there. And this mosquito was just going around and round and round. It was confused. It didn't know, is this a human being or is it a rock or is it a tree or what is this thing? Yeah. He thought maybe it's a human being. Yeah. Because mosquitoes apparently, they go according to some of the, th we kind of, we, I don't know, we uh, have odors or we have CO2, carbon dioxide or something. We emit certain things and mosquitoes feel that. But when you become really still, you don't emit anything anymore or you emit such a small amount. Uh, the mosquito gets confused, uh, goes round and round, getting more and more hungry, this mosquito, right? Uh, desperate. Uh, that was kind of, Interesting, yeah. So uh, this is like the pasaddi of the body, yeah? When the body becomes really, really calm, really like a rock, and nothing is happening, yeah? And even your kind of, uh, it really settles down. Uh. There's another nice story. This is a story from the suttas. I, I told all of the stories before, but they're kind of nice stories. The story of a, a monk, uh, this is from the, who, who was uh, getting into some really deep meditation, like even deeper than this. Uh, and the kind of the Sanyavadaita Niroda, also known as, and, uh, as a, uh, Niroda Samapati. Yeah. And uh, he, when you get into that state, certainly you don't breathe or anything like that. Uh, as he was sitting in the forest, and as he was sitting in the forest, uh, these two um, cowherds or whatever they were, or not cowherds or whatever, they were picking sticks from the forest, right? Uh, and they were kind of collecting firewood or whatever. So they were collecting firewood and they came to this monk. Uh, 
And the one says to the other one, look at this monk over here. There's something wrong. Something wrong with this monk over here. <laughs> so, I'm being naughty. He's so still. He's so peaceful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not quite, but close, but not quite. So he's so peaceful. What, what's wrong with him? And then they look at this monk in the forest. Uh, and they cannot see any movement. Uh, and so one, ca one of these uh, stick-collecting uh, lay people said, well, maybe we should just give him a nice burial, right? He obviously must be dead. There's no movement there. We have all of these sticks we're picking up. Anyway, let's give him a nice cremation. Uh, <laughs> so they build out this funeral pyre, right? And then they get the monk and they put him on top. Tick, we kind of pluck him on top. Uh, and uh, put it all, light it all up, and then they, they walk off. Uh, and then the uh, next morning, uh, the, all the monks from the nearby area, they come on arms around. That's what, um, what they do. And so these two men now, they are ready with the food, and they're going to offer food to the monks. Uh, and so they offer food to one monk after the other. Uh, and suddenly they look up. There's that monk. They burned yesterday. He's coming on arms around. <laughs> What's going on? Venerable, we cremated you yesterday. What are you doing here? Are you, are you a ghost or what is happening here? <laughs> And uh, the, the, the idea here is that if your meditation is deep enough, you cannot be touched by fire anymore. Huh? It's like you have gone into a state where fire is not able to touch you. Huh? Don't ask me how this is possible, but that, uh, that is according to the idea. Not only is your, can you not be burnt, your robe can't even be burnt, right? So his robe is even intact. So he, the fire kind of goes, and then the fire goes out, and he still sits there. And then he kind of gets up, and he walks on arms around. Uh, that's kind of how it, how it works, according to this uh, so there is a certain protection uh, yeah, within, from these very profound states of meditation as well. Or so it seems from the suttas. Uh, I must admit, I'm not entirely sure about that one, but it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting idea anyway. Uh, <laughs> some of the things in the suttas are, occasionally there are things that uh, uh, stretches the uh, credibility, but um, anyway. It's always like that in the suttas. If there are things that are unusual and they only occur once or twice, uh, then uh, sometimes it is, um, uh, it is not wrong to, uh, to think that they might have been added later on. Things have been added to the suttas. Uh, some things are not necessarily authentic, especially if it is narrative and it is written by faithful people who didn't, wasn't, weren't there at the time, these kind of things. Uh, then you have, uh, and it's reasonable to have some doubt. We also know that it's doubtful because different versions of the suttas tell the story in different ways. Uh, some of the versions have lots of miraculous things, other versions everything is normal. So it, it, you get the feeling sometimes things are a little bit dodgy sometimes, especially in the narrative. When it comes to the actual teachings of the Buddha, it's incredibly consistent throughout, uh, which is what really matters. Uh, anyway, so he does all of these uh, things, and then when the body is really tranquil and undisturbed, uh, then the mind becomes immersed in samadhi. That's the next one. Uh, he attains samadhi. And of for that reason, we again have the, all the uh, jhana formula coming now, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unskillful qualities. Uh, that's the five hindrances, by the way. I entered and remained in the first jhana. He translated as absorption. Because you are absorbed within a particular state, and that's why absorption is an acceptable translation for jhana. Then he goes into the four jhanas, and then he goes into the tevija, and then uh, having done all of that, uh, uh, the Buddha ends the sutta by, with his beautiful similes. Uh, so I'm going to have now a quick look at these similes. Uh, 
Suppose that in a forest wilderness uh, there was an expanse of low-lying marshes uh, and a large herd of deer lived nearby. Then along comes a person who wants to harm, injure and threaten them. Uh, they close off the safe, secure path that leads to happiness uh, and open the wrong path uh, that leads to dukkha, presumably. Uh, there the plant... Uh, domesticated female and female deers as decoys uh, so that in due course that herd of deer would fall to ruin and disaster. Uh, then along comes a person who wants to help keep the herd of deer safe. Uh, they open up the safe, secure path that leads to happiness uh, and close off the wrong path. Uh, they get rid of the decoys so that in due co course uh, the herd of deer would grow, increase and mature. So you can kind of start guessing what these things are, right? So I have made up this simile to make a point. This is what it means. The expanse of low-lying marshes is a term for sensual pleasures, the five-sense world. We have already seen this before, how it is considered like a marsh, a swamp, a place where you get stuck. The large herd of deer is a term for sentient beings. You will notice here sentient beings, not human beings, but sentient beings. And this means that we are dealing with all beings, really, all beings in the sensory realm, at least, even the gods, even things like animals. Yeah, they're all trapped in this particular way here. So, sentient beings. A person who wants to harm, injure, and threaten them is a term for Mara, the wicked. The wrong path is a term for wrong eightfold path. That is wrong view, wrong aim, wrong purpose, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong stillness. A domesticated male deer is a term for greed and relishing. A domesticated female deer is a term for ignorance. A person who wants to help keep the herd of deer safe is a term for the Buddha, fully awakened Buddha. Uh, the safe, secure path that leads to happiness uh, is a term for the noble eightfold path. Uh, that is right view, right purpose, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. Uh, so, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful... Uh, Little simile there, right? The idea, again, of the marshes uh, being stuck in the central realm, uh, being trapped. It's like uh, a treacle, treacle, you know, kind of trying to kind of get your, get out of it, but you are really, really, really sticky. Huh? And uh, the large herd of deer, kind of deer are not particularly intelligent, yeah? They just roam around randomly looking for food and these kind of things, uh, and so human beings or beings are a bit like deer. We don't really ha we're not as wise as we think we are. We don't really understand what is going on. Uh, we just roam around in samsara, trying to find pleasures here and there, trying to find nourishment here and there, but not really understanding what we're doing here. And then you have Mara, the wicked one, and that is often just a word for the temptations of the world, uh, right? Uh, and they close off the secure path, uh, basically... That is when there is no Buddha around. That's when that path is closed. Uh, and all there is is temptation in the world. Uh, and they open the, uh, the wrong path. Uh, and um, uh, the wrong path is the 
noble eightfold wrong path and always beginning with wrong view. Huh? And because it always begins with the wrong view, uh, there is no way out. Because uh, the whole path begins with either right view or wrong view. And if there's wrong view, the whole path is destroyed. Uh, and as long as there is no Buddha, there's always going to be a degree of wrong view. Uh, so you are stuck. Uh, there is no path at all when there is no Buddha. Uh, and this is the problem. Uh, so you are really trapped. Uh, and then there is these uh, two decoys, uh, the uh, the the... the male and female deer, and one of them is desire, and the other one is ignorance. And these are the two things that block beings in the world. You are hindered, what is it, the hindered by ignorance, and, uh, how does it go again? The hindered by ignorance and uh, fettered, by, fettered by craving, yeah. yeah, or blinded by ignorance or fettered by craving. Yeah. So ignorance, uh, the fact that you don't know avidja means that you are blind, yeah? you are hindered by it because you don't see what is going on. And the other one is the fetter. The fetter is that what ties you to the world. A fetter is this word that doesn't really, you're not really used anymore, but a fetter is like a ball and chain and that kind of thing. Yeah? Or you're fettered by a chain to a prison cell and that sort of stuff. You are tied down. So desire and craving ties you down. It propels you on into the future life. It projects you into the future existence. Yeah, you're driven by craving. Yeah, and then you are hindered by ignorance because you cannot see. You don't know where you're going. You have no idea. You can't tell up from down, back from front, dark, darkness from light. And because you can't see these things, you just keep on going round and round, roaming into samsara, roaming around samsara in this way. And this is why Buddhists get a bad name for being so pessimistic. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of the Buddhist world. It's a bit bleak, but the point is that it's not whether it's bleak or not. It is whether it is realistic or not that really matters. Uh, and once, if it is realistic uh, and you don't have a way out, well, then it isn't so bleak anymore. Uh, and this is kind of the point. If you're not going to be realistic, guaranteed there is no way out. Uh, so realism is required to see these things. And this is why the Buddha is the eye of the world. He creates that realism in us. And that kind of gives us the opportunity to do something about it. <clears throat> then the Buddha comes along, yeah, the eye of the world. And he sets out, first of all, because he is the eye of the world, he sets up right view. And as a function of that right view, the whole Noble Eightfold Path comes into existence as a consequence of that. And then the Buddha says, So, mendicants, I have opened up the safe, secure path to happiness and closed off the wrong path. I have got rid of the male and female decoys. He has in his own life, for sure, and now he's trying to kind of do that for us as well. Out of compassion, I have done what the teacher should do who wants what is best for the disciples. Here are these roots of trees. Here are these empty huts. Practice jhana, practice absorption mendicants. Don't be negligent. Don't regret it later. This is my instruction to you. This is this beautiful ending that you see in many, many suttas. Yeah. I have done what a teacher should do out of compassion. The Buddha, driven by compassion, that's the only purpose for the Buddha to teach. And I've done what a teacher should do. Now it is your turn to take over. It is your turn to ensure that you put these teachings into practice. Yeah, we have 
created these huts for you. Huh? We have, there are roots of trees if you haven't got a hut. Uh, go into solitude. Be by yourself. Learn to enjoy seclusion that is so hard to, to enjoy. Huh? And that is where you will find the answer to this profound uh, conundrum of life, the ending of all the suffering, the ending of the round, of going round and round. Uh, no more roaming, but now having a purpose, a real aim, a real goal for your life. Uh, the um, Dhamma is said to be sa'atang. Sa'atang means having a real goal, actually having a real purpose. And this is what, to me, distinguishes Buddhism from everything else. There's a real purpose to this practice. It's actually going somewhere. There's a stopping to this moving around in circles, never actually going anywhere. So go to these empty huts. Go and do a retreat every now and again. Practice absorption. Jayata bhikkave. Jayata is related to the word jhana. Sometimes translated as a meditator. But really it refers specifically to jhana meditation. Don't be heedless. Yeah? Don't be pamada. Be, don't be negligent. Get on with it. Because otherwise you might regret it on your deathbed. I had the chance. I had the opportunity. I didn't take it. Ah, too late now. Huh? This is my instruction to you. Huh? Well, I wonder what it would be like to be there when the Buddha said these things. Yeah, kind of have goosebumps, right? It would be like, imagine how powerful it would be. Huh? Just gone through a discourse, uh, the Buddha says these things to you. It's like, wow, okay, off to the forest. <laughs> This is what the Buddha said. Satisfied, the mendicants were happy with what the Buddha said. Okay, everyone, that is all for this afternoon. Please keep on enjoying yourself. We'll have some interviews and we'll see you back again at 6.30 this evening.